You're listening to the Evanston Bible Fellowship Podcast. EBF is a community of sojourners empowering one another to cultivate gospel transformation. To learn more about our church, visit ebfchurch.org. Today's scripture reading comes from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14 to 17. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Church family, it is so good to be with you this morning as we dive into God's word together. And even as our excitement builds for being able to regather once more and the advancements that we've seen in our community, we are reminded of what's happening on the other side of the world, even in a place like India, where the second wave of COVID has hit hard. And so, As we pray this morning, as we unite our hearts, would you join me in praying for India and also for the illumination of God's word as we intersect with uh, standing firm in God's armor that he supplies. So would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we come to you this morning grateful for the opportunity to regather soon. And at the same time, mourning, mourning on behalf of our sisters and brothers in India and in other places of the the world hard hit, but especially there, Lord, we pray for the alleviation of suffering. God, that your hand would would be felt. Lord, for supplies and aid to be brought in quickly and for for, um, just the the alleviation of the loss of life there, God. We pray, Lord, not only in India, but across this world for the end of this virus that has so ravaged our world, our nation, our community. And Father, would you use us as your people to continuously bring the light of your gospel, the hope of your gospel. Lord, as we turn to your word this morning, would you provide comfort and solace, challenge as we grapple with what it means to strap on your armor and to wage battle as you have called us to. And so, Lord, Holy Spirit, would you illumine your word, help us to grasp even more its significance and its height and depth and its meaning for us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Picture in your mind four soldiers silently moving along an exterior wall in tight formation, tactically covering the angles with their assault rifles. This team has been assigned the dreaded task of clearing buildings and in preparing to engage that unseen enemy, they creep up to the door of the first building and the point man assesses the situation and he he taps the soldier behind him, sending the signal to the back of the team to prepare for the assault. And then the rear security sends the double tap forward all the way back up to the front as they prepare for that onslaught. And as the team leader commands, the point man kicks down the door, throws in a flashbang, and the team explodes through what's called the death funnel. 
firing at the enemy whose sole aim is to kill each and every one of them. And in an instant, it's all over. And you hear those words, one, clear, two, clear, three, clear, four, clear, room all clear. And then they restack to do it all over again. Can you imagine a soldier going into a situation like this without their body armor, their boots, their Kevlar, or their weapon? The reality is that even now we are engaged in a much more profound spiritual war that is raging all around us. But God has given us His strength and has thoroughly equipped us with the whole armor of God. And in this passage that you've heard read that we're going to dive into this morning, Paul's imagery is drawn from the prophecy of Isaiah. You see, it is God's own armor, God, the Lord of hosts, which he has given to his Messiah that is now provided for his people as we engage in spiritual warfare. This passage here in Ephesians 6 at first glance might seem like a bit of a departure from where Paul has been going, but it is actually a fitting conclusion to the entire book of Ephesians. In these verses, Paul weaves together many of the key themes in Ephesians. He's been, he's been making the case for the cosmic unity we have with God and then the corporate unity we have with one another through Jesus, through his, his life, death, and resurrection. Last week, Robbie skillfully opened up Ephesians 6, 10 through 13, and reminded us that our strength comes from the Lord. We must understand who the real enemy is, and we are strengthened to stand firm. The bottom line he gave us was that Jesus won the ultimate victory over evil on the cross. We endure the battle that remains when we stand firm in the power of his resurrection. It is this standing firm that Paul now takes up in verses 14 through 17. The call to stand firm has already appeared three times previously, just in verses 10 through 13. In Ephesians 6, verse 11, Paul writes, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And then in verse 13, it appears twice. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. Stand firm. That is what becomes the main command here in verse 14. Stand firm. This is a charge that Paul uses frequently in his writings. 1 Corinthians 16 verse 13 says, Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. Or how about Philippians 4 verse 1? Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. And then in 1 Thessalonians 2.15, So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. What Paul's going to do here in the rest of these verses is to answer the question, how are we to stand firm? Thankfully, we are not left defenseless. God's own armor, his character and his actions that he has given to his Messiah is now issued to us. This armor speaks to our identity, who we are in Christ. 
And it speaks to our loyalty, the loyalty that we are to have to our commander-in-chief. Think of a sports fan covered from head to toe in their favorite team's gear. In a way, the armor issued to us also identifies us as being part of God's team. At the core, this passage is a clarion call to stand firm by suiting up with the gospel gear Christ issues. Truth, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation, and the word of God. To put on the armor of God is to put on Christ. What we will do is examine each of the six pieces of armor in turn, drawing out the historical background, Old Testament foundation, development in Paul's writings, the gospel connection, and their relevance for today. In Ephesians 6 verse 20, Paul alludes to his imprisonment. He says there that he is an ambassador in chains. And I can only imagine as he sat there and saw perhaps the guards nearby, he uses this image of a Roman soldier and their complete armor from head to toe as an extended metaphor. Each of these pieces representing a different quality or aspect of our lives in Christ, what it means to follow him in discipleship. And overall, the posture is one of defense, not ceding any territory that has already been won by Christ. And the picture is one of unit cohesion, followers of Christ standing firm shoulder to shoulder and having each other's six. That's another way of saying having each other's back. I think there are two dangers though to approaching a passage like this. One is making too much of the passage. Admittedly, with my army background, this might be a particular temptation, but we can make too much of this by trying to draw out and maybe spiritualize or over-spiritualize why each piece of armor is associated with each virtue. One reason to not do this is found in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 8, where Paul actually connects the breastplate and helmet with different qualities. Another danger is not making enough of this passage. We can do that perhaps by being offended by its militaristic language or viewing it as irrelevant or archaic or understanding or underestimating the enemy and the spiritual battle that is raging all around us. Church, my heart is that we will approach what is perhaps a well-known text with a renewed gospel lens seeking its truth and impact for our lives, and asking the Holy Spirit to further equip us to stand firm as we move out in faith. In my mind's eye, I picture, maybe because I've stood in those lines as a soldier, waiting to be issued certain pieces of equipment. In my mind's eye, I picture us standing there and Christ supplying us, Christ handing us each individual piece of armor. And the first piece of gospel gear that Christ issues is the belt of truth. The belt of truth. For the Roman soldier, the belt would have been a leather strap around the waist with additional sticker straps that hung down to protect the thighs and, and then also to help gather up clothing for increased mobility. It actually reminds me of the, the modern soldier's ballistic pelvic protector. That's a mouthful. But Paul's description here alludes to Isaiah 11 verse 5, which in describing 
the Messiah and his role, it says, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Truth also factors prominently in the book of Ephesians. Followers of Christ are those who have heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Rather than being carried away by craftiness and deceitful schemes, we are to speak the truth in love to one another. God himself is characterized by true righteousness and holiness. And walking as children of light means bearing the fruit of all that is good, right, and true. Truth is at the center of the very gospel. It holds our spiritual armor together. It keeps us from being entangled. And it is vital that we be strengthened by God's truth revealed in the gospel. So to put on the belt of truth means to be strengthened by the truth of the gospel and to determine to live in that truth. The truth of the gospel supplies us with confidence and gives us inner strength. It is sometimes debated whether Paul is referring to the knowledge of the objective truth of the gospel or truthful living and character, but they really go hand in hand. Perhaps we're meant to see both. Not only do we need to be reminded again and again of the truth, but we need to resolve to live in that truth. As we have seen in recent times, too many people who claim to know Christ dabble in falsehood and are, and are susceptible to conspiracy theories and falsehoods. The armor begins with that which is central to the gospel and calls us to trust in Christ who is himself the way, the truth, and the life. Well, the second piece of gospel gear that Christ issues is the breastplate of righteousness. For the Roman soldier, the breastplate was made of leather and covered in metal, protecting the chest and the vital organs. It also communicated, in certain instances, it communicated status and sometimes marked other military victories. I can't help but think of modern body armor and also the combat patch that is worn that shows to everyone else that this soldier has, has been through hell. Paul draws from the language of Isaiah 59, 17, where the Lord of hosts, the Lord as warrior, it says this, put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Earlier in Ephesians, Paul urges believers to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Walking in light involves bearing fruit that is good and right and true. It's interesting in the book of Ephesians that, that righteousness and truth always appear alongside one another. Like truth, there are two aspects of righteousness that Paul could be harnessing here. The first is God's perfect righteousness that he imputes to us. And the second is our righteous living in light of God's gift of righteousness. And I think Paul may have both in view here, calling us both to hold fast to God's gift of righteousness and to practice justice and righteousness toward others. Putting on the breastplate of righteousness is virtually synonymous with putting on the new man in Ephesians 4.24. So, to put on the breastplate of righteousness 
means to revel in God's perfect righteousness given to us and to reflect God's righteous character in our lives. G.G. Finley, in commenting on this passage, says this, The completeness of pardon for past offense and the integrity of character that belong to the justified life are woven together into an impenetrable mail. Church, we continue to wear the breastplate of righteousness when we keep trusting the gospel truth that Christ's righteousness is what allows us to even stand before God in the first place. And it is what protects us from any sort of condemnation. Righteousness should guard our heart and cause us to walk in integrity. It is a mark of genuine Christianity and part of how we are called, as Ephesians 5.1 reminds us, to imitate God himself. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. The third piece of gospel gear that Christ issues to us is the gospel boots of peace. For the Roman soldier, the proper footgear was a a half boot with a heavy sole that had these hollow studs on the bottom for better traction. This allowed them to be able to to dig in and to stand firm against the enemy, much like picture an athlete's cleats today. Paul's language reflects that of the messenger heralding good news in Isaiah 52, verse 7. It says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness who publishes salvation, who says, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Peace is also a key theme in Ephesians, especially in chapter 2, where Jesus, who is himself our peace, he is peace personified, secures both our vertical peace with God, verses 1 through 2, or 1 through 10, and then our horizontal peace with one another, chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. And so it is because of this that we should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The book then even ends on a note of peace. It says, peace be to the brothers. What is Paul getting at when he says, as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace? You might notice here the emphasis falls on readiness as being properly equipped for spiritual warfare. One of the greatest, a great paradox that's found in this passage is the fact that feet fitted with the gospel of peace is what prepares us to do battle. We are to maintain readiness by putting on the gospel of peace with both its vertical and horizontal dimensions. So to put on the gospel boots of peace means to rest so deeply in the peace that Jesus secured for us on the cross that we are ready to proclaim it to others. The gospel is what provides us with good traction and keeps us from sliding when pushed up against. Followers of Christ never graduate from the gospel. We need to continuously appropriate 
the gospel, to, to soak in that gospel, even as we announce it to others. So what is your state of gospel readiness? Are you prepared to proclaim the gospel of peace? Christ, who is the embodiment of peace, made peace through his death and resurrection, and now that peace is to be proclaimed among all people, bringing together all kinds of diverse people into one new fellowship. Paul, in reflecting this language in Romans 10, 14 to 15, says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. The fourth piece of gospel gear that Christ issues is the shield of faith. For the Roman soldier, this was not the small round shield. No, it was the rectangular wooden shield that was four feet high. It was covered in leather and would be dampened before battle to to be able to extinguish those flaming arrows that would be shot toward it. Roman soldiers could also close ranks with one another, holding those shields edge to edge to form a formidable barrier. In the Old Testament, the shield is used as a powerful image of God's own protection. Proverbs 30 verse 5 says, Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Psalm 91 verse 4, which actually brings together both the shield and faith, says he will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. In Ephesians, Paul speaks of his readers having faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are saved by grace through faith. We have boldness and confidence to access God through our faith in Christ. Christ dwells in our hearts through faith. And we who are a part of one faith together await the unity of the faith that is to come. For Paul, the shield of faith then is his way of saying that our shield is faith. Our shield is faith itself. Faith harnesses the power of God to stand firm against temptation. It is a deliberate holding on to Christ that is firm and resolute in the face of fear. Paul envisions faith as trusting the gospel of Jesus to shield us from Satan's lies. So to take up the shield of faith means to take hold of the promises of God with the confidence that he will protect us in the midst of battle. Roman shields required soldiers to work together. It's a great reminder to us that we are better together, stronger as a unit, and that our unity is ultimately in Christ. What are some examples of those flaming darts that we face today? It could be in the form of Satan's accusations or demonic attacks. It could be doubt or fear, lust, rebellion, anger, or bitterness. It could come in the form of false teaching and even divisions that threaten the unity of the church. 
or even fiery trials, tragedies that strike, illness and persecution. Some of those arrows can even come from inside our own camp. Look back at Ephesians 6 verse 12. It says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I fear that too many Christians leave out the word not and read this as, for we do wrestle against flesh and blood. Church, God is a shield to those who take refuge in him. And conventional wisdom says to fight fire with fire. But God's wisdom says that we fight fire with faith. 1 Peter 5 verses 8 through 9 says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. The fifth piece of gospel gear that Christ issues is the helmet of salvation. For the Roman soldier, the helmet was made of bronze and included cheek pieces that probably had to have made for some weird tan lines. I remember coming back from overseas with a really weird helmet tan line, especially on my chin where there was a a chin strap that went kind of over the top and under the bottom. But as we read, as we read earlier, Paul draws again once more from Isaiah 59, verse 17, where God as a warrior has his own helmet of salvation on his head as he saves his people and judges their enemies. Then in Ephesians, Paul pictures salvation as God's plan to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. We are saved by grace and seated with Christ Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, for, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For Paul, the helmet consists of salvation and is the ultimate assurance of God's protection. He can simultaneously speak of salvation being past, present, and future He can speak of it as in terms of, I am saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. Our salvation that has been secured through Christ must be continuously appropriated. This is similar to what Paul says in Philippians 2.12 when he says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So taking up the helmet of salvation means having confidence in the salvation we have already received while eagerly anticipating the full salvation we will someday experience. Charles Hodge writes on this this note, writes, That which adorns and protects the Christian, which enables him to hold up his head with confidence and joy, is the fact that he is saved and that he knows his salvation will be perfected in the end. Rather than experiencing salvation for the first time, taking up 
The helmet of salvation means appropriating more and more of the gift of salvation given to us by Christ. We have been transferred to a new dominion, the kingdom of light, but there is still some mopping up to do. I don't know about you, but I look forward to that day when the helmet of salvation will be replaced by the crown of life. And in the in-between, the helmet of salvation guards our minds and, yes, it fills us with hope. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 8 says, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Well, church, the final piece of gospel gear that Christ issues to us is the sword of the Spirit. For the Roman soldier, the short sword was about two feet long and used for close hand-to-hand combat. It was used to defend as well as to attack and is the only offensive weapon that we have here in Paul's list of armor. Once more, Paul appears to draw from Isaiah 11 verse 4 where the powerful word of the Messiah brings about judgment. It says this, But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Paul equates the sword of the Spirit with the word of God. The word first appears in Ephesians 1 verse 13 the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Then in describing the sanctifying of the church, Christ's bride, Ephesians 5.26 says that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. By calling this piece of armor the sword of the spirit, Paul is highlighting how the sword's power and effectiveness flow from the Holy Spirit. The word of God is a term that Paul often uses to refer to the gospel. But the term for word here is not the usual word logos. Instead, it is rhema, which emphasizes the word as spoken, the word as proclaimed. So to take up the sword of the spirit means to take hold of the word of God, the gospel, and proclaim it in the power of the Holy Spirit so that people are liberated from the realm of darkness. We have none other than the Messiah's sword in our hands. And the enemy and the world would like nothing more than for us to keep it in its sheath, to convince us that it is old, dusty, archaic, dull, perhaps irrelevant, boring, confusing, hard to understand. But we have been given this weapon for our defense and for the plundering of the enemy. And one of the ways God causes us to use the word for our defense is by bringing specific scripture passages to our minds when we are attacked by evil spiritual forces. Consider Jesus who knew the word and used it to counter Satan's temptations. But the word of God is also to be proclaimed in order to plunder the dominion of darkness. We must read it, meditate upon it, Memorize it and study it. Hebrews 4 verse 12 reminds us 
of this great truth. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Well, in reflecting on the armor that Christ has issued to us, I fear that too many Christians have adopted the mindset of a mercenary rather than a soldier. A mercenary is in it for himself, takes what he can plunder for himself, abandons others when the going gets tough, and even turns on his own side if it seems advantageous. Instead, a soldier is one who is loyal, carries out orders quickly, represents their their country and commander honorably, and remains steadfast in battle even to the very end. The armor of God is to be put on completely. We do not pick and choose what pieces to put on. Christ supplies it in its entirety, and it is our responsibility to fully put it on rather than letting it collect dust in the corner. I think back several years ago to how in, during my time in the army, I would use putting on my, what we call battle rattle, my gear as a reminder to put on the very armor of God. And so in a similar way, I just want to challenge us as a church, perhaps even when we get dressed in the morning, as we put on our clothes for the day, would we use that as an opportunity to mark together and to prayerfully and consciously don the armor of God? Not as a good luck charm, not because we think somehow it will keep us from suffering, but with the realization that God's own armor that he has given to his Messiah has now been issued to us to confidently wage war against the spiritual forces of evil. Satan attacks us both individually and corporately. And the armor protects us both as individual followers of Jesus Christ, as well as protecting the very unity of the church. It strengthens us as we face injustice, as we face suffering, temptation, spiritual attack, and yes, even despair. So church, let us stand firm by suiting up with the gospel gear that Christ issues, truth, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation, and the very word of God. Amen, church. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you. What a, what a vivid image that you gave to your servant, Paul, that he now has passed on to us. We do pray, God, that you would enable us to, to put on each of these pieces of armor that you have so graciously given us in your mercy, Lord. Pray each day, Father, that we would be, we would be dressed and ready for action. Lord, would you enable us, would you enable us, O oh Lord, to stand firm as soldiers, not as mercenaries, to stand firm to the very end. Father, would we strap on the belt of truth, this truth, the objective truth of your gospel, and also to live out your truth in our lives. Father, would we put on the breastplate of righteousness, remembering the righteousness that we have because of Christ 
and living justly and righteously in this world. Father, would you enable us to put on those gospel shoes of peace? We who have experienced your peace, Lord, would we shout it from the rooftops? Father, would you help us to take up the shield of faith, remembering that this faith is possible because of your son's death and resurrection? Would you, ta- would you help us to take up the helmet of salvation? Would we remember our salvation? That is, at the same time, we can say, I am saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. Would you enable us, would you help us to look forward with confidence in the hope of our salvation? And Father, would you cause us to take up the sword of the Spirit, the very Word of God? Oh Lord, would we read it? Would we meditate upon it? Would we be so immersed in your word that we are enabled to both defend ourselves in the face of evil, but also to, to plunder, to plunder the dominion of darkness, Lord, liberating others in the process. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this, your holy word. We, we pray that you would continually strengthen us to stand firm, in the faith, knowing that you are able, you are able to do so much more than we ask or imagine. We pray this in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. To hear more messages from EBF, subscribe to our podcast. And to find out how to get connected with our church, visit ebfchurch.org.